focus is not a, a positive thing that you do it is a negative thing that you do it is a it, like people think it's about like intense squinting your eyes like really but but no it's just about not doing lots and lots of things um and the the, the best illustration i have seen of that is uh i don't know if you've heard of this warren buffett method of prioritization but he uh, does this thing where he, he writes down a list of like uh, his, his 20 or 25 biggest goals. Okay. And then he prioritizes them and, and figures out what the top ones are. And then he circles the top five. Okay. So now he's got 15 to 20 goals that are not circled. And so the question is, what do you do with these goals? Active lifers. Good news for you today. Bulletproof is back. Due to popular demand, we have brought back our body part-specific training programs. The Active Life team of doctors and coaches have developed four programs for you to choose from. Back, shoulders, legs, and total body. Kiss your aches and pains goodbye and finally feel great again. Check out the link in show notes for all of the details. What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life podcast. Today, my guest is Ben Wilson, the creator of the How to Take Over the World podcast, which is a podcast that I have found myself enjoying thoroughly. I started listening to it in October when Dr. Ryan Summers, who is our director of RX activities at Active Life, and Larry Geyer, who most of you probably know because he did podcasts with me for a long time here, told me about this really cool podcast they had started listening to called How to Take Over the World. And that was in October. Today, as we record this, it's November 12th. I had one road trip and I have listened to every single episode that you have put out. And I believe that, first of all, you're a phenomenal storyteller, phenomenal storyteller. Your tone is great. The way that you take people through stories is just, it's calming to listen to and inspiring when you start to understand it. So I think that you're, you're a master at your craft doing that. And I appreciate you for it. Well, thanks, Dr. Sean. And, and thanks for the kind words about the show. I guess the, the takeaway I'm taking is I, I need to put out more podcasts so you have more to listen to if I mean, uh, you knocked it all out in a month. You, you, you put out a significant enough number of podcasts that I probably did an unhealthy amount of listening in a month. <laughs> and, and yeah, put out more and make sure that you keep the quality of them where they already yeah, yeah. are because it's, it's, it's really cool. And I find myself, you know, one of the, one of the things that I believe is the best way that we can create the future is to really clearly understand the past and being, being an entrepreneur and not knowing anything else that I would possibly be good at besides being an entrepreneur. I find it fascinating to watch documentaries about people who made massive change in the world, whether they were doing good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's how did they achieve it and then use that for good that I want to use it. Your podcast is a great example of that. And there's a bunch of stories that we'll talk about as this show goes on. I would love to hear from you, though. Is there anybody who you ever researched for one of your shows or otherwise who taught you more about how you wanted to live your life than anybody else in particular? You know, the thing about the way I do this is I'm always just following my curiosity. There's no rhyme or reason to how I pick who I'm going to study next. And so it's really just... Um, it's just a, a matter of, of passion and, and what I'm feeling interested in. So my answer is basically it's whoever I'm studying right now. Right. So, uh, I'm coming to a close on 
Alexander the Great. And I started to study um, Brigham Young and Joan of Arc. Just kind of both of those are kind of different change of pace from what I've been doing in the past. But um, yeah, it's it's always. And so those three characters are kind of looming large in my life right now because that's who I'm studying. That's interesting. And, and do you find that when you learn about these people that you, you tangibly change anything about the way that you do what you do day in and day out? Yeah, it, it's just little like um, there's, there's almost a, a biological thing that happens to you when you get immersed in a story like that. And you just find yourself, everything you do is just a little bit different, right? So I don't, I don't go out there. I don't read a, a biography about Napoleon and try to be Napoleon and consciously try and affect every single um, a thing that he did. But, but you do just find yourself in that mind state a little bit more, um, just kind of 1% different in, in sort of everything that you do. Uh, so I do find, and, and I, you know, I've had a quite a large change in my life since I started this podcast and now, and I think a lot of that has come from implementing some of the stuff that I've learned from this. Do you think that, do you ever wonder or, or worry that the stuff that you're able to share with us is based on the stories that were written by the winners in history? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, it's a little bit like, um, yeah, they, they call that survivorship bias. Right. And mm-hmm. so um, if the only stories you hear are from people who won the lottery, then you're going to think, well, playing the lottery seems like a really great strategy. Right. Because all the stories I hear are people winning. Um, so, yes, I do think that there needs to be some caution of. Uh, you, you look at someone like Steve Jobs using Steve Jobs tactics when you're not as smart as Steve Jobs can be perilous, right? Like if you're yelling at everyone and, and you have this kind of brash personality and you're telling everyone they're wrong and you're not the smartest person in the room, you just need to maybe take a a little humility pill and, um, and, and maybe not act like that. So yeah, there is a little bit of that danger, but having said that, I think that there's much more of a problem these days with people being too meek, too timid, not aspiring enough for greatness, not trying big things. And so, um, I think there are more people making the opposite mistake. I, I would agree with that. And and since you brought up Steve jobs, I would love to stay right there because he's one of the people on our list. I wanted to discuss with you. I find him to be a fascinating figure. And the reason why I find him to be a fascinating figure is I would love for active life, my company to be like Apple, but I have no interest in being like Steve jobs, <laughs> you know, and part of that is perhaps because I'm not as smart as he was, the other part of it, I think, is because I I want people who are around me to feel better because they're around me, not to feel scared into doing the work that they need to do. And and everything I've ever seen about Steve Jobs is, wow, what a phenomenal world changer. I wonder if he could have done that without being such a dick. You know, th- th- those, are the, those are the things that I, I wonder myself. But one of the lessons that I got out of your podcast about Steve Jobs that was most profound was his ability to focus and ask for exactly what he wants when he wants it. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So one of the great canonical stories of Steve Jobs um, is when he was a young teenager. I can't remember his exact age. I want to say he was like 14 or something like that. And he needs a part for something he's building for this, this little high school club called the Explorers Club where they build computers and other electronics and mechanical devices. Uh, he ends up calling, um, it's it's one of Hewlett and Packard, the, the two founders of HP, Hewlett Packard. He calls one of them. I think it's 
I think it was Hewlett. Hewlett. I think it's, yeah, Bill Hewlett. And uh, calls him up, <laughs> says, hey, do you, can you help me find this part, essentially? And, uh, and then uh, t- talks to him, has a conversation with him and says, I, I want to work for you. Will you give me a job? And he does this with, to great effect over and over again, walks into Atari, brushes everyone off, goes to the CEO, says, I want to work for you. Give me a job. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work for you. Like, um, and you just realize when you read about it, how uncommon it is for someone to just go directly to the person, know exactly what they want and ex- ask for exactly what they want. He did that over and over again uh, and to great effect. What I found most influential for me about that episode was after I finished listening to that episode, I had a podcast with a guest who I have a ton of reverence for. I've been following this guy for a long time. His name is Rob Wolf. He may have been the episode right before you or two before you, whatever it ends up being. After the show, I felt like Rob and I had had a really good conversation and he said he wanted to continue talking and figuring out the things that we can do together. And I said to him, I would love to ask you a really selfish question. And I just told him exactly what I would love to be able to get out of a relationship with him. Like what, what is the ultimate in the end of the day? Yeah, it would be great. I would love to be your friend. I would love to learn from you. I would love to just be in the room on a regular basis. And I just told him, I said, I believe network is net worth. And I believe that you have done the work for a long time to build a really valuable network. I would love to be tapped into that network. I would love for you to make introductions to people who you believe I can bring value to inside of your network. And I don't know if I would have done it quite as directly had I not just listened to your episode about Steve Jobs doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it it is like uh, there are very few actual hacks in life that are just kind of tried and true. Like you do this and it will change your life in one easy step, one easy step. Um, (laughs) That's one of the few, that, that is one of the few ones. And that is another one that, that really stuck with me, um, after, after I did it. Um, and it, it is like, there, there's so few people in this world who know exactly what they want. Like it's, it's the classic dilemma. Let's all go out to dinner. No one wants to have an opinion. No one wants to say that it's actually a mercy. Like it seems selfish, but it's actually a mercy oftentimes to know exactly what you want and to just state it. Because Mm -hmm. everyone is so worried about treading on everyone's toes that when there is a person who's just very direct and very clear about what they want, it allows everyone else to kind of now work around that and at least provide some clarity. And so that truly is like a, one of those hacks It's so simple to just ask for exactly what you want, but it, it can get you so far. I also think that what could get lost in somebody leaving your podcast with, oh, just ask for exactly what you want is the belief, which you dispelled in the show that, oh, you just ask and people give it to you. When the reality is he chased down, I think it was Hewlett, for weeks or months and continuously went and asked for the same thing in a different way until he got the answer that he was looking for. It was not just, I want a job. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, you had the balls to ask for it, so we're going to give you one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually think, so Hewlett, I think he got on the first try. I think it's um, is it like Mike Markula or one, one of the... Uh, one of the the marketers, one, one of the early executives that he worked with. Oh, it was the publicist. And, You're right. It was the publicist. Yeah, it was the publicist. It was, um, gosh, it wasn't Markla. Who was it? I'm, I'm, um, his name will come to me later. Anyway, um, but he, yeah, so he, he was already famous. He had worked with Intel. He'd worked, he'd done all these famous marketing campaigns. He calls him up and basically his secretary is like, get lost. 
So he calls back the next day and he, he calls every day for like two or three weeks. And finally, his secretary is so exasperated that she tells her boss like, hey, will you please just talk to this guy? Get him off my back. So he, he talks to him. But it, it's yeah, you're right. It's not just asking for what you want or it is and being. But it doesn't work every time. Like many people are going to tell you no, but uh, other times people will tell you yes. And a surprising number of times people will tell you yes. And if you're persistent enough, you can almost always get to yes. Yeah. And I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for the conversations where they were debating the yes between Steve and whoever it was he was trying to get the yes out of. That would be fascinating to me to hear. Um, yeah. One of the things that I, I, I found really interesting about the way that you present things, and I, I want to move to Thomas Edison's episode with you. Um, have you watched the show The Men Who Built America on the History Channel? I haven't. Okay. I don't know if you would like it or if you would hate it because you know more of the detailed history of how it all went. When watching that show and listening to your podcast, what became clear to me is that there were some metaphors that they built into the show where like this person was actually representing this, you know, this, this group of people who did these things in these ways. But one of the things that they highlighted on the show that you also talked about was the day in which Thomas Edison turned the light switch on in the house, in the dark room. And you talked about the awareness that he had that being a showman was equally important to being an innovator. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there's this meme that has gone around and I don't know who started it or how it's taken hold. But there's this idea that um, Tesla was the true scientist who had everything figured out. And um, and Edison was this greedy businessman who actually just stole other people's inventions and uh, like corrupted true science and, and true invention by being involved in the business and the marketing side of things. But at the end of the day, like if you invent the light bulb and you keep it in a room and no one ever finds out what did you do and what did it benefit anyone? Like, I think if you want to be great, you have to worry about the, the whole thing. Um, and there, there's nothing that says that great inventors can't be great marketers as well. Mm. Uh, and Thomas Edison was both. He loved the showmanship. And I think it's a part of what fueled him. And it's a, a part of what fuels many great inventors is not just the invention for the invention's sake, but they love that feeling when they show it to someone and the light that goes on in their eyes when they see something completely new. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, I think that I, I forgot to elaborate on it, but, but it's, it's not dissimilar. Maybe it is. So I don't want to, I don't want to draw conclusions here, but I said that I, I see active life as a company. I would like to be like Apple, but I don't want to be like Steve jobs in terms of the way that I present to people. One of the things that I relate to very much that Steve jobs did was he wasn't the best at any of the things that happened at Apple. So meaning he wasn't building motherboards. He wasn't designing um, software. He was saying it needs to do this when it's done. And then allowing really good people to do this. I find myself in a similar position. And the question becomes if, if did Steve Jobs invent the Macintosh? Right. And I would say the answer to that is yes, despite the fact that, he didn't invent any of the components that go into it. And it, it, you know, I was talking to one of our staff members yesterday about the Edison and Tesla situation. And I was explaining how you described it on the podcast that 
Edison would say, this is what we want to do right now. We need to develop this right now. And then he had a team of people in his office, in his lab, who all worked together to build that thing. And yeah, someone like a Tesla may have been more high-skilled than other people there and, and may have finished things. But is Edison not a part of that if he was directing the traffic? Yeah, and, and I think that leadership is always... Uh, actually the most difficult thing to come by and the most important kind of linchpin in the whole process of any of these things. So it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, you know, Caesar and Alexander the great weren't the greatest warriors in their armies. It's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) And (laughs) that's not the point at all. Like you're right. Steve jobs wasn't the greatest engineer at Apple and Thomas Edison was a phenomenal engineer, um, but but probably didn't end up as, as the greatest engineer at, um, at General Electric and, and any of the companies that he founded, um, certainly not on in terms of day to day inventing uh, towards the end of his life. And that's fine. Like they continued to pump out very important inventions that he was the father of because he identified and he was able to lead and, and marshal a team in that direction. And so leadership is always the most important in any pursuit. And, and I think that uh, for people listening to this who are not the leaders of an organization, you also need to be able to lead yourself. And that, that's important because if I look at the difference between an Elon Musk, for example, and a Steve Jobs, Elon Musk is a rocket scientist who is in the development of all the things that are going on at the boring company, at Tesla, he, at, at SpaceX. He is a part of development. And Steve Jobs was too, but to a lesser degree. And all of the people who are working in those businesses need to be able to take the idea and lead it to where it needs to go. Otherwise, we're, we're just one guy says a bunch of things and then everybody just sits around. So and I, I think like a misconception that people have is that I think that everyone should be that these are lessons for everyone. I think they can help everyone. Um, I think everyone should study these people and it's interesting. But um, I think that there is like this reluctance to admit that anyone is better than you or greater than you or above you. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's like a great relief when you, that you find in your life when you're like, okay, I inhabit a certain place in this world. And there are people who are not as skilled as me at certain things. And there are people that are more skilled than me at certain things. And I sit in the middle of any given hierarchy and I am okay following people above me and leading people who are below me. And, um, and I think that's important to recognize and there's a time to follow and there's a time to be a, a cog in the wheel and work towards leadership. And, uh, and there's no reason to look down on, on that part of the team. Well, it's, it's not on my list to discuss him, but you talk about that with Putin the whole time that this guy, this right. guy stayed in as a, as a cog in the wheel for like 60 years. Like trusted Lieutenant. That's exactly <laughs> what he was, you know, of like, Vladimir was the guy who will just get things done and also won't take credit for it. You'll get all the credit for it. So mm-hmm. he, he'll stay behind the scenes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a great lesson in that, which is the idea that the, the better you can make other people look, the more likely you're going to end up where you want to end up. Yeah. There's a, an article I remember on this. Uh, I think it's called Bill Belichick and the uh, whiteboard theory or something like that. But it's all about how Bill Belichick's, uh, who's a great football coach, if people don't know, uh, coach of the New England Patriots, about how his strategy early in his career was essentially like, 
I am here to, to clean the whiteboard. I am the one who is here to facilitate, to make my boss look good. And it's just going to come back to me in the end, which I definitely think is true. Well, and the interesting situation that happened there was he had a guy named Tom Brady whose job effectively it was to make Bill Belichick look good. Right. And yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a whole story in itself. But another thing about Edison that I found really fascinating was uh, the way that you described his ability to be last and, and, and prioritize being last as much as being first where the light bulb was the example that you gave until you talked about it. I thought Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. And it wasn't until I listened to your podcast that I realized Thomas Edison innovated the light bulb and people wouldn't even recognize what the light bulb was before as the light bulb. And so everyone associates inventing light bulb with Thomas Edison. Yeah. And you know, he, um, it's almost like there are two ways that Thomas Edison could invent. The first is when he invented recorded sound, um, uh, the phonograph. And it was just like, serendipity it was like magic right mm-hmm. he just this thing that no one had ever seen in the world and and he kind of stumbled upon and and it was this great invention the light bulb as you mentioned was kind of the opposite like everyone knew that the light bulb was coming everyone knew that it was this thing to work on and uh many people were working on it he was just the one who marshaled this team and was like okay well the reason that we can't get the light bulb to work is we don't have the right filament we don't have the right substance so we're just going to try 10,000 things until something works. And we're just going to be in the lab all day for years until we find something that works. And, um, and so, and you see the same thing with Steve jobs, like people were telling, saying that Apple should do a phone for years before they actually did the iPhone. Uh, and so there's, there's nothing wrong with, with being late and being last if you can be the one to tip it over the edge and, and find that, that edge that makes things work. I forget what the device was that there's, there's like this mythological story of Steve jobs in the back of a limousine and somebody pulls out a device and says, look, Microsoft is making it better than you. And he looked at it and said, yeah, we shouldn't be making it at all. I'm glad, it, you know, I'm glad <laughs> they're making it better than us. And, and, and he just, he decided that the focus was going to be on at the time, I guess the iPod and the computer. Which, which was, I haven't heard that one. That's that's a good story, though. Yeah. I, I wish I knew more detail of it, but uh, that's your specialty, not mine. <laughs> I'll, I'll track it down. I'll, I'll look, look for the tweet. Track it down. Uh, Manza Musa was a great episode. Uh, I didn't know anything about him until I listened to your show. I had never even heard of this individual. And like when I heard the name, I'm like, you know, I think I've heard of that name, but couldn't have told you if it was an Asian person an African person, a white person, someone from the Middle East. I had no idea anything about them. Is, is it like a Peruvian guy who was at Machu Picchu? Who was it? <laughs> so in listening to your show, obviously I, I now know who Manza Musa was. And one of the things that you talked about that really stood out the most was the way that he made an entrance. And the reason why I find this one to be such a, an important lesson, not that any of the other ones aren't, I just find this one to be especially, um, easy to grasp and, and to, to, for people listening to this to say, Oh, I, I never do that is if he didn't do it the way that he did it, we probably aren't talking about him. Right. So I I would love for you to share some of that. Yeah. I mean, it's from a time period. There's a reason you have no idea uh, who, who Mansa Musa is. It's from a time period in in an area of the world, West Africa in, uh, 
put me on the spot. I put myself on the spot, but like uh, 1300s, 1200s. Um, but that, that's not widely known. Right. And so if he hadn't done, he, t- he takes his pilgrimage. Mansa Musa, Mansa Musa was Muslim. So he takes a, he takes the Hajj, he takes pilgrimage to Mecca. And along the way, he brings this caravan and he's probably the richest person of all time. So this caravan is just loaded with gold, literally just camels and pack animals and horses just loaded with gold. And he, he actually, along the way, is accidentally like blowing out the monetary system of every town that he goes through. <laughs> so he's he's trying to be generous, but he's giving out so much gold that it's crashing the economy because inflation gets so crazy because of all this money that's flooding these little towns that he, he learns pretty early on. Like, OK, I actually it's not good for people if I give out this much gold. He did. Learn um, that. What was that? He did learn that. He did, yeah. Eventually, supposedly, he uh, he learned to be a little more careful about it mm. um, after making the mistake a few times. But it's like his, and it's interesting the way that your life can all sort of be under the surface. You're you're building towards something, and maybe you don't even know what that thing is, and um, it kind of meets in this this pinnacle that everyone sees, but. You know, Mansa Musa was a, a king for decades before this pilgrimage, which is the only reason that we remember him. Um, and so you got to be ready for that moment because all your work might pay off in, in just one moment. Yeah. What, what I find, I, I, have, I have a few things that come off of that is the first thing is I wonder if he was doing it to make a scene or if he was just like, how else would I travel? <laughs> you, you know what well, I mean? I think, you know, the, the well, I think... To, to make a scene partially, I think there's probably also a, a degree to which he was just a legitimately pious person and was hoping to be charitable and give away some of this money and uh, was making a scene in order to, to try and glorify God on, on this Hodge, which was important to him. I, I find there to be an interesting parallel, again, bringing it back to Elon Musk with Manza Musa and Elon Musk today in, 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 in maybe a tangential way. But you described how he gave away so much money. It was gold, but let's just, for today's terms, we think about it as money because it will be less confusing to to conceptualize, that he devalued money wherever he gave it away. And I don't know if you saw, but recently somebody called out Elon Musk and said with only 2% of his wealth, he could solve world hunger. And he tweeted back, if somebody can show me the plan and we can open source the accounting I will cut the check for $6 billion today. I will sell $6 billion of Tesla stock today and fund it. Have you seen that? Yes. That, it was such a good exchange. It was amazing. And, and then the head for UN, um, whatever it was, you yeah. know, fight and poverty, whatever his position is, says, well, you know, that's not really how we do things. We should chat. We should chat. And uh, Elon <laughs> says, no, look, look, dude. And, uh, yeah, it is interesting. It, it does show you sort of the intractability, the difficulty of solving some of these issues that like you can literally have all the money in the world like Mansa Musa did and just try and give it out. And you're going to have some second order consequences that maybe you didn't anticipate. Well, and, and one of the things I don't know how much you know about the fitness space, Ben, but one of the one of the struggles that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast find themselves dealing with is they want to be able to put out a really high quality level of service. And then they look at what it would cost them to be able to put out that really high level quality of service. And they start to feel bad that there are people who they would like to be able to help who would not be able to afford to work with them if they charge those kinds of prices. And so they do their best to get as close to that quality of service 
while still being at a price that they believe is affordable and everybody ends up getting less than what they would like to be able to get because they're able to give less than they would like to be able to give. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I do think that there is something to be said for, um, I understand that impulse, obviously, you know, like there are people that you, that you want to help, but I do think that there's a lot to be said for not compromising on your vision, uh, and on your dream and kind of letting the chips fall where they may, right? Like if that's not your, like you're trying to help people, but if you're, if your vision isn't to run the, the style of, of service, that's going to actually work at that price point, then you're just, you're falling in the middle. And that's one of the things you see is one of my big takeaways from all of these stories is just never fall in the middle, like mm-hmm. never kind of <laughs> go halfway. Um, just, uh, as, as they say in the office, uh, never half asset, always full asset. Well, can you give an example of perhaps, um, what the middle would look like? And, and so like, I, I, I'll tee it up for you, I guess, and give you some, some simple ways to think about it. And not that you're not smart enough to do it yourself and you can come around with something better if you have it. But to me, the middle would be something like Steve Jobs compromising. And, and I would love to hear from you an example of where that could have happened and what that may have done. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think yeah, actually the easiest, um, thing to look at is Apple after Steve Jobs left in the nineties. Right. So, um, this is the in between. Yes. The in between period. So, so he gets kicked out, he goes to next, uh, starts his new company and everyone starts making these very practical decisions that Steve Jobs had refused to make. So, Hey, you know, Steve Jobs is crazy about only making a few models and making them great, but like, let's just go down market a little bit. And we'll release all these different variations of these different computers that appeal to different people. Essentially, Apple just says, what have we been doing? Let's make a computer for everyone. Let's appeal to everyone. And so they have low end computers, they have medium, they have high end computers. And then you get a situation where um, like there's the, the market is flooded and everyone is confused by the amount of offerings that Apple has. No one can really tell you anymore what Apple stands for and what an Apple computer is compared to any other computer. They lose all of their differentiation. Um, Steve Jobs then famously comes back and says, okay, he draws a two by two on the whiteboard and says, laptops, desktops, consumers, professionals. He says, we're going to have one computer for each of these people. That's it. Four computers. Okay. Maybe there are people who want a lower end computer. They don't get one, <laughs> you know, like that they, they, they can buy something else. That's just Apple is going to do these four things. And so uh, to, to me, like Apple in that interim period is an example of someone falling in the middle and just compromising their vision to try to appeal to everyone. And what's hard, I think, for people to, to conceptualize, at least I'm finding myself even, is if you weren't paying attention in the 90s, what did that mean? What did that look like? You know, what, what, what was Apple then compared to what is Apple now? Yeah. And, and the, the, yeah, for those people who don't know, a- Apple was months away from bankruptcy when Steve jobs came back and took back over. Uh, the, the, the company was essentially done. Like people were jumping ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was able to, to save it. 
um, and, and the, the product that essentially saved Apple is, I don't know if you remember those colorful iMacs that yep. came out. I do. I don't know. It was like 99 or something like that. Um, that had the, the blue and the orange and all those, but mm-hmm. that product saved Apple. And that was Steve jobs and Johnny Ives brainchild. But it, it was, it was probably going to go under in, in a matter of months before he took back over. Insane. And now it's basically an economy in itself. Yeah, it's the second most valuable company in the world. It was the most valuable company in the world until a month ago. Yeah. Who it, passed it's it? Microsoft. Really? Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all this time, Microsoft back on top. The race is still on. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, someone, Peloton needs to find somebody in Steve Jobs' lineage to bring him back. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of companies that um, could could benefit from that type yeah. of leadership, obviously. Um so, okay. There, there are two more cases that I would really like to, to get to from your show to discuss because I think that they, they bring valuable lessons about today. And, and all of the things that we've talked about, I think, bring valuable lessons to, the, to today. And we can tie them up before we wrap. But uh, the Rothschilds. Again, another example of – I've heard that name. I don't know who they are though. And then when I listen to the podcast and you start talking about you were looking to find who the most wealthy person of all time was and – I guess by factor of these things with the way we measure money and Mansa Musa was before modern currency and these kinds of things, we have to go with the Rothschilds. I knew nothing about them. And the two biggest things that I gleaned from that podcast or those three podcasts, if I remember it was three, a series of three. Uh, yeah, that might be right. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, was number one, they had some core values that everything always came back to. And number two, they prioritize a very specific kind of education. I would love for you to start with the core values. Do you remember what they were? Um, I, I, well, so I, I, when I think of their core values, I think um, back to Mayor Amschel, the, the first uh, Rothschild. And he was um, unfailingly honest. So the, the very famous story about him is uh, he... Um, had a nobleman nearby, he managed his money, essentially. He was his banker, right? So he has all of his money. And what happens? N- Napoleon comes in and invades. And so um, this nobleman has to flee. And essentially, uh, Napoleon comes through, liberates the Jews, right? It, it, so this is supposed to be a very positive thing for the Rothschilds. There are reasons for them to be very positively disposed towards the French who have just come through and invaded. And um, there's every reason. This is uh, the, the territory is occupied for years. So years later, uh, his patron comes back. And the famous story is that uh, he says, you know, look, I understand there was a war. My fortune is gone. Is there anything left for me? And uh, Rothschild essentially comes back and says, oh, no, no, I've got it all here. And I've got the interest that I was collecting while you were gone. And it's like um, he had that perfect excuse to just like take the money and, and run. Mm-hmm. But it was worth so much more to be a trusted actor that everyone knew, like, is going to be above board with me every single time. I can trust this guy with my money and I can trust that he is going to be an agent that will always act in my best interests. And that allowed him to to scale. And I think that was really the core value that allowed them to um, to do so well. It's interesting that you bring up the education because um their education was entirely practical, right? So for those first couple generations, 
those boys were in the, the family business, were doing the banking from the time they were like 12, 13 years old. They start running errands and then they quickly get into the minutia of actually being bankers. And there is a very direct correlation from when they start sending the kids to college to when the performance starts to drop within the family. Um, once they start being educated, just like everyone else, and they kind of lose that focus, they, uh, they lost their edge. So we got to stay there for a second because that, that whole thing is fascinating to me. And I've talked to my wife about this at length and there's a, um, there's an old Japanese, I believe it's Japanese business rule that the third generation does not inherit the business. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Uh-uh. But so, so I believe it's Japanese and I believe I learned about it when I was reading the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the, the founder of Nike. And if my recollection is, is, is serving me, the story is founder builds a successful business, <clears throat> has a child. That child growing up watched that founder build that business. They saw the things that needed to happen, whether they understood them or not. They knew they were coming home late at night. They weren't always available during the day, during the week. We weren't always flying private. You know, we weren't always going on these lavish vacations and it took a lot of work to get here. So they appreciate that and they do everything that they can to emulate the former, but they don't have to all the time. And so now their younger generation sees what they did and they were born into money. Their life was easy from day one and they were like, yeah, you know, this isn't so hard. And so the Japanese started to see that this would happen over and over and over again. I I don't know where that all started. And then they said, our rule in business is that we do not allow the third generation to inherit the business. We sell it to somebody else before that happens. Yeah, it's a really interesting rule. And, and to, like as evidence of what you said, there's actually I found it very touching this incident where um, so so the founder of the Rothschild uh, dynasty mayor has five sons. OK, and they go to kind of the five corners of Europe and they're running banking houses in different corners of Europe. And, and it, it's exactly what you said. Like they grow up pretty poor. Like their dad's doing okay, but they they grow up in this little townhouse in in Frankfurt, and uh, and they all sleep the five boys to a room, right? They're all sleeping in the same bed, and uh, now they're all very extremely wealthy, and they have some conflict over something how, how they should manage the money, what they should do, and so they're arguing about it, and you can see it just has the chance to tear this family apart, and um. One of them says to the other, well, oh, well, we're going to work through this. Were we promised anything more when we were sleeping in the attic of our house in Frankfurt? In other words, like, okay, well, in the grand scheme of things, like we grew up poor. (laughs) Like we, I slept in the same bed as you until I was 16 years old. We're both billionaires now. Like none of this really matters. Like we're going to work through this obviously because we're family and and we're so close to this origin story that like we can see uh, how, how important this is and what we've really accomplished. And I think you're exactly right that like that edge fades over time. Um, And you see it, a little bit in the second generation and then a little more in the third. And then the fourth is just kind of gone. Have, gone. have you seen the recent viral clip of uh, Shaquille O'Neal where his, uh, his, his kids say to him, you know, it's a good thing we're rich dad. And he's like, we're not rich. He's like, I'm rich. 
<laughs> we're not rich. I, I, I found it to be a funny, a funny clip because it, it is a, a paradox, right? Like part of the reason that you want to work so hard and build something so large is that you, you want to have a major impact on the world. And that's, that's the altruistic part of it. If there wasn't something selfish to that altruism, then we wouldn't do it. And at least that's my belief. And so part of that, I think, is we want to make it so that the life of our, our future generations can, can thrive. It's, it's, the, it's the survival of your gene. Um, and it's such an interesting thought to say, if I make it too easy for our genes to survive, then they won't thrive. And that's, it's interesting. Well, and I think if you look at, uh, I don't know if you read the blog Astral Codex 10, but it, it's no. very good. I recommend looking it up. Um, it's on Substack, I believe. And he had uh, this week an article about extremely successful families. And most extremely successful families are just what you said, done within a generation. Like maybe the kids have some success and then it's done. Um, one of the interesting ones he brings up is the Darwin family. So Charles Darwin is probably the one that everyone knows, but his, his, both of his grandfathers were extremely two of the most important scientists in England. Uh, his, his parents were very successful. He had siblings who were very successful. He had children, he had grandchildren, like this family kind of defies the odds and goes for generations. I think it's a little easier to do in science than it is to do in business because in business, you start to reach a point where if you're the Walton family that built Walmart, mm-hmm. it's like, what, where, where do we go from here? Right. <laughs> you know, like what, what, what's the vision beyond this? We have, you know, what used to be uh, the biggest company on earth. Where do we go from here in science? There's always somewhere to go, right? There's always new discoveries to be made. And I think that's it. Is it so hard when you've achieved that level of success to have a vision that is still larger than where you are. But if you do have a vision that's that big, that that reaches his arms all the way around the world, then you can still have, um, you know, your Augustus Caesar, your guy who starts out on top, but is still hungry for more because he, he has a vision of, of how it could be even bigger. Well, that's, that's the idea of one of my favorite expressions is if you want people to, if you want people to be inspired by your vision, make sure that it's large enough for their vision to fit inside of it. Right. And, and I, I find that to be a really uh, smart way to think about sharing a message. So I want to go back to the Rothschilds for a second, because there are two things that you talk, two things you talked about uh, quickly that I want to, I want to just make sure people understand what happened there because they're great lessons for business and life today. One of them is he was watching the money of a very wealthy person investing the money for a very wealthy person who, or, or using it to give out loans and collect interest on those loans. And then a war came and that wealthy person had to flee the country. And it was reasonable for that wealthy person to believe that all of their money had been seized by the government who came in. And it would have been reasonable for Rothschild to have said, I'm just going to take this money and be wealthy. And nobody would have thought anything about it. It would have been the easy and the fastest way for him to get rich. Instead of doing that, he hid all of the money. Not only did he not steal it, but he took the risk of hiding it from the French who came in to liberate him, right? Literally secret tunnels under his house to keep it hidden. Right. So it was going to the wildest degree 
just to maintain integrity. And I think that that's, that's a phenomenal lesson. And it's, it's, we talk about it all the time on this show. And I know you, you're probably not an avid listener yet, Ben, but, um, we talk about only selling to people who are in the market for what you have. And that means telling people who come to buy from you, I don't think you should spend your money here. And that is a very small thing that people have a very hard time doing. Meantime, this guy was in a war zone and instead of taking money and being celebrated for it, he hit it and risked his life. Yeah. There's like two levels of honesty. There is like the, where I will not commit dishonest acts. And then there's a level of honesty that is like, I will move heaven and earth in order to maintain my integrity. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the lesson of the Rothschild family, at least early on was that they were willing to do that. Yeah. One of the, one of the more morbid ways that I look at the relationships I have with people is what do they say when the Nazis come looking for me? <laughs> right. Right. Is, is, is this a friend who takes the chance or is this a friend who just points at the floorboards? Yeah. Everyone talks about like, I'd bury a body for you. It's like, okay, but do you, you do realize that they, they arrest the person who helps someone bury the body, right? right. Like right. you would do that. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, the other thing you talked about with the Rothschild was that he put his kids in the five different corners of Europe. And what I found fascinating about that was that the reason that they did that was so that they could have the advantage on speed of information. And then you talked about on the show that they, they started doing things the government did to make it more difficult for the Jews to be able to get information. Like their, their, their letters needed to go through review before they could receive them. And so they started to build code in the way that they sent and received letters that would give them information before they even got to opening it. That's right. So they've got one son in Germany, one in Austria, one in Italy, one in France, one in England. So they really like, they, they have uh, Europe pretty well covered. And this allows for information to make its way very quickly between the branches of their bank so that if there's some news in Italy of something happening and so therefore the government bonds are going to be more or less valuable, they have this this network of messengers that goes super fast from uh, bank to bank. And so uh, I know this in Italy. I'm Carl Rothschild. I can tell all four of my brothers very quickly. And like you said, this anti-Semitism, they get suspicious of, of Jewish bankers. And so they start essentially cracking down on this um, and telling them, okay, well, the government has to hold your letters for 48 hours and we're going to read them before we, we seal it back up and deliver your letters. So they come up with this code that essentially is, all right, if the outside of the envelope is red, that means, you know, buy Deutschmarks or buy uh, English government bonds. And if it's green, it means sell English government bonds. And so it's, they, uh, again, I've like kind of pedal to the metal are extreme in quick communication. Again, this is a case where you might say, all right, well, a reasonable person would say, all right, well, I guess that advantage is gone. Um, but they just find a way. Yeah. Being unreasonable is something I love to think about. Yeah. The last person who you chronicled that I want to discuss today, um, only for the sake of podcasting your time, I would love to discuss all of them with you for a week, is uh, Julius Caesar. And there were two stories about Julius Caesar that stood out to me that I wanted to discuss with you and one that I just found fascinating that I want to just tell you I found fascinating. The one I found fascinating was when the pirates kidnap him 
and he requests or demands that they charge more for his ransom because he's more important than that. And then the whole, I I don't want to ruin it for people because I want them to listen, but the whole story of how that ends was, I mean, like I almost had to pull the car over and I was like, Oh my God, what a boss that guy was. (laughs) So amazing. It is. I, I do love that story. It just tells you what kind of person he is. So it's exactly what you said. He gets kidnapped by pirates. They are holding him for uh, for ransom money, and he he tells them and this is before um, he was Julius Caesar. Like he was the same correct. person, but he wasn't the leader of the free world back then. So he is um, a minor nobility from Rome, right? Mm-hmm. He's a he's a young kid. He's a commander. He he is part of the upper class of Rome, but he's not anyone yet. He's not anyone important. And his family is not that wealthy. Like his family had actually kind of fallen on hard times, but they're still, uh, you know, uh, of the senatorial class of Rome. So, so they have enough money. So, so yeah, they want to charge ransom. And he's and he says, that's not enough. <laughs> you need to charge. Like, you don't know who I am. I'm Julius Caesar. I'm, I'm up and coming. I, I matter. You need to charge more. So they charge more. And as they're holding him, he becomes like their leader. He's really charismatic. He's, he's very intelligent. He's talking with them. He's making jokes. They're laughing at his jokes. They start to like this kid. And he tells them, you know, I'm going to kill you all when I get out of here. Right. And they start laughing. They're like, ah, Julia Gaius. That was actually his first name. You're, you're, you're so funny. And uh, so eventually his family pays the ransom. He leaves. He comes back. He kills them all. And um, (laughs) the, but, but he had actually become friends with them. And so the punishment for um, a, a pirate, if they were caught by the state was crucifixion which is an agonizing form of, of torture. It's a, a horrible way to die. And uh, he's like, well, look, these guys are my friends. So he slits their throats and kills them quickly before he has them crucified so that they don't suffer. So it is just this like very funny, like For you us. see the way he is charming, the way he can be a good friend, the way that loyalty matters to him. But at the same time, like he is going to stick to his, his principles and to his um, uh, like his dignity, his, his, Dignitas, his, uh, that was a word that they used at the time. His, um, what's the word I'm looking for? But like his I prestige know. was was really important to him. So th- I love that story. I think it's fascinating. There, there were two others that I thought were um, just really telling of what drove him. And, and one of them was when he came back from all these incredible military accolades and wanted to be the leader, number one, in... Rome and instead was offered triumph, which would delay his opportunity to become leader in Rome, which at the time there was no promise that he was going to be at all. It it would be like somebody today being told you're 29 years old or you're 33 years old. You can't be president until you're 35. We're going to give you this big fancy day and then you can be president when you're 38. And he was like, "Ah, I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing, so a triumph is what was going to happen. He had this big victory. They're going to, it's called a triumph and a triumph was really rare. And yes, to have a triumph, it is like going to New York city, having the ticker tape parade, having everyone. So, so they would literally, as they're being paraded uh, through Rome, they would have someone stand in the chariot with them as everyone is celebrating them. And this person was a slave and they would whisper in their ear over and over again, Remember, you are mortal. Remember, you are mortal. The implication being, if you didn't have that person there, this was so glorious, you would think you were a god. Um, and so this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing for anyone to be able to celebrate in Rome. 
really the, the, the greatest achievement anyone can, can kind of imagine. And it's exactly what you said. He, he's like, yeah, but I'm not just thinking about one triumph. I'm thinking about being the most powerful man that Rome has ever seen. And I can't wait. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how he delayed that gratification um, for an uncertain future that he wanted to pursue. And then the other side of that is when he saw the statue of Alexander and he wept. And the reason why this one was so profound for me is I remember when I was like 18, 19, 20 years old and these guys would get drafted into pro sports and I would look at their, their, their name and their accolades in the year that they were born and be like, Oh, they're, they're older than me. Like I have, I have time. And then you get into the business world and you start looking at these CEOs or like the Forbes 30 under 30, 40 under 40. And you're like, Oh, I've, I have time. They're still older than me. And now here I am, I'm sitting, I'm 38 years old and I'm still doing it. I still look at these things because I'm like, I have so much to do and I haven't done anything by comparison to what it is I intend to do. Plenty of people would say you've done a lot. I would say I've done nothing in comparison to what it is that I want to do. So the story of Caesar seeing the statue of Alexander and weeping was so profound to me. And I would love for you to share that. Well, and the thing that was that really, uh, I think you did a pretty good job of recounting that. Yeah. He's in Spain. Um, and he's kind of up and coming, but he sees the statue of Alexander and he realizes, man, I'm the same age that Alexander the great was when he died. And I am just like a Roman functionary out here in outer Spain, which, you know, Spain's great country at the time at uh, uh, right now at the time, Spain was like kind of the edge of the world. Right. And it was, it was kind of frontier territory. And he's, he, he sees a statue of Alexander. He's like, I got to get back to Rome. Like I got to get started. And the thing that really brought this story home for me was reading about Edison when he reads about, I think it's Faraday, um, who was a, a great inventor before him, English inventor uh, and, and scientist and he's reading Faraday's biography and he has like almost the exact same thing that Caesar has. Uh, he like has a, a mini breakdown and he goes, I can't believe how little I've accomplished compared to Faraday. I'm going to hustle. That's the, the phrase he uses. I'm going to hustle. And um, similarly, the Edison trajectory goes, goes, goes straight up after that. Mm. And so, so it is a funny pattern. And it's, it's almost, I do think everyone needs that moment in your life of, you need that person to measure yourself against, you need that role model. And, um, it's okay to feel that moment of panic that like, man, I haven't done anything. Everyone kind of, kind of feels that. And, um, and that's okay. As long as you don't let it bring you down, you let it motivate you. Yeah. I think that, uh, Colonel Sanders is probably the last benchmark for anybody who, who is looking to have that kind of success. He finally hit it like age 64. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right. So by the way, I find it so interesting that Caesar and Jesus just missed each other in terms of age. Yeah. Well, and Jesus is very much living in Caesar's world though, right? The, the yeah. empire that he had built. Yeah. I just, it, it's interesting what, what the world would have been had Caesar been born 70 years later than he was born. Yeah. It's interesting to think. Um, so there, there, there are five very clear things for me, at least that I took out of, uh, the, the stories that you just 
shared and the people that, that we just talked about. And I want to share them with you and get your thoughts on it. And um, we'll go from there. When I look at Steve Jobs, it, it teaches me to be direct. You know, know what you want and be direct about it. Otherwise, you, you can expect to get less than exactly what you want. When I look at Edison, it tells me to be persistent. You know, that this, you could do the same thing 10,000 different ways for years. And when you finally do it the right way, your entire world changes and the entire world changes. When I look at Manza Musa, it's to be bold. It's to avoid shrinking down to what the rest of the world would expect because that's not who you are. It's not what you're trying to do. And boldness is going to make sure that you're remembered. When I look at Caesar, it's to be extremely focused, you know, turning down the triumph, coming back and killing the pirates, all of those things. And so many other stories in his talk to me about like focus, 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 focus. That's, that's the theme really of all of these, but especially of his. And finally, when it comes to the Rothschilds, it's have integrity, you know, be a person who is who they say they are when, when they say they are. And I, I find those to be lessons that are valuable, not only in the times that these people live, but today, and not only in business, but in life. And I'm curious if you would have taken those any different way than the way I did. Um, I think you drew out um, some of the most important lessons. I also like a lot of the little tactical stuff, right? Of just like small little things that people do. And I think they often, they, they connect though, right? Those, those little habits come from those big habits. The, the one I just wanted to kind of double underline that I've been thinking a lot about recently was, was the thing about focus. Mm-hmm. And what Steve Jobs said, his famous quote about focus is focus is about saying no. So focus is not a, a positive thing that you do it is a negative thing that you do. It is a, a, like people think it's about like intense squinting your eyes, like really but, but no, it's just about not doing lots and lots of things. Um, and the, the, the best illustration I have seen of that is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this Warren Buffett method of prioritization, but he uh, does this thing where he, he writes down a list of like uh, his, his 20 or 25 biggest goals. Okay. And then he prioritizes them and, and figures out what the top ones are. And then he circles the top five. Okay. So now he's got 15 to 20 goals that are not circled. And so the question is, what do you do with these goals? And I think the inclination of most people when they hear focus is like, okay, that's great. Yeah, you're right. You got to focus on the top five. And then for those bottom 15, you put them on a different list. You put them on the maybe later list. You put them on the like back burner. You, you, you know, maybe when I have an extra minute instead, Warren Buffett puts them on a list titled avoid at all costs. He, he will. And it's because he knows that like, oh, these are the things I want to do that I have goals around that just didn't quite make the list. And so there is that temptation for me to be sucked into spending time doing these things, but I need to focus. And so I will avoid these at all costs. And so I think that people, um, they want to focus, but they don't realize how much you see, need to say no to in order to really find that true level of, of focus. Yeah. It's when you said that I got this sinking feeling in my stomach about things that I'm currently working on that I know are just temptations that I should avoid at all costs. 
Yeah. And it's a sinking feeling because it's, it's clear. It's clear to me in my subconscious when I'm by myself. So that's, yeah, that's a good lesson right there. Yeah. Uh, then I think that, as I said in the introduction, I think that your show is a masterclass on presenting historical lessons and providing your insight on them. And this is, this is what I think you can learn from this story without casting judgment or projection for what somebody else should learn from it. Is there anything that you would like somebody who listens to your show to get from it that perhaps I didn't do a good enough job of sharing today? <laughs> you did actually a really good job of kind of getting my, my greatest hits, hitting sort of uh, my biggest takeaways. Um, I, I would say... Um, maybe just a, a couple other little things. Um, one is, you know, I started this whole project in my parents' basement, <laughs> you know, like I was part of the startup that was failing. I had no money. I was like kind of down and out a little bit when I started this whole thing. And um, I started it and I really liked it. And I really enjoyed doing this. And so I did a few episodes and then I sent them to a company and I said, Hey, do you guys think this is good? And would you hire me as a podcast producer? Because I'm enjoying doing this. I would like to keep doing this full time if I can. The company gets back to me and says, yes, we listened to it. You're right. It is really good. And yes, we would like to hire you. And um, from there, I, I just, things went so quickly for me. Um in a way that I was like not anticipating. Um, I then uh, did, did well at this company. There was sort of a, one of the top executives left and started his own company. And he hired me to be one of the, actually the first employee, number one, one of the top executives at that new company, the company has done well. And, and tons of new opportunities have come and have done um, really well for me. Uh, so one of the things, when you study these people, you realize that they're like a, a shark in water. Um, like they're able to follow their instincts because it's just a perfect match of a problem and a person who was born to solve that problem. And so what I would say is don't take these solutions, these lessons to be learned and apply them to the wrong field. Like if it's really feeling like hard work, um, then maybe you're just not doing the right thing. Um, it's, 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 of course you have to work extremely hard to be great at anything, but it should feel a lot like play and it should feel like you're that shark in water. Like you're doing the thing that you were born to do. So just with all these lessons, make sure that you are aiming in the right direction. You're doing the thing that you were born to do. Ben, where can people find you? Um, so if you think of how to take over the world and take the first letter from each of those words, it's H T T O T W. That's uh, it's one of the worst domain names on earth, but that's uh, go to httotw.com or just search how to take over the world wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. This was amazing. I appreciate the opportunity to interview you. And I want to say this. Um, you mentioned that you emailed the leader of this other company and said, I, I would love to get your thoughts on this and see if there's a fit. And that ended up with you becoming employee number one in a new company that's done very well. I found you 
because you share your email at the end of every podcast or at least frequently on your podcasts. And I listened to it maybe five or six times before I decided I'm going to email them. And I'm not a person at all who hesitates on these kinds of things. But I, I couldn't help but believe that I needed to figure out a way to bring value to you before I could just reach out and say, I love your podcast. Like, you know, teeny bopper, so excited, Ben. <laughs> um, and what I learned from this, this, in, this exchange that you and I just had, is that it, it, when somebody puts breadcrumbs out there for you, and you believe that that person and you should connect over anything, it's imperative that you pick up those breadcrumbs. I maybe should have emailed you after the first time because I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how or anything like that. And I want to commend you for making yourself accessible on your show so that people like me can find you. Um, well, thank you for reaching out. This has been um, one of the best interviews I've ever done. You, you really did your homework and, and asked questions in an interesting way that has me thinking about um, so some of the stuff that obviously I've researched, but um, has me thinking about it in different ways. And, and so this was great. Um, I do, um, you know, I don't know if you listen to any Gary Vee stuff, but he used to. You, 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 yeah. Um, you, you can text him, right? And okay, he is Gary V himself actually going to text you back? But, you know, probably not. I'm sure he has a team and, but, but he does his best to be open and accessible to people. Um, I, I do the same and, and some people waste my time, but it's worth it for those people who, who do know what they want and are able to add value to my life. And, and not only just like add value, but um, I get to have conversations like these. And if I make one friend out of it, it's kind of worth all of it. So it's been great. I love it. Well, Ben Wilson, thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Active lifers, I have good news for the fitness professionals out there. If you are ready to build a rock solid coaching and training practice, the best place to start is in the Active Life Seminar. Hosted live and online, you're going to learn our signature nine-point movement assessment system, rules for training and programming with pain, and how to make sales feel natural so much more. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. Active Lifers, I have a favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, we pride ourselves on bringing value to you through the lens of bridging the gap between fitness and healthcare. The best way for you to support this podcast is by reviewing this episode wherever you listen. Please give us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. Your support helps so much. Send a screenshot of your review to us on our Instagram account at ActiveLifeRx. As a thank you, we'll gift you a special PDF with the most common mistakes made when working out and how to correct them.